Hello, and welcome to the Cycling Industry News Podcast. This month, we're going to be looking at threats and opportunities to the bike industry in the coming 12 months. And I think we've got one of the very best people in the whole of the bike industry to talk about this. We've got Joshua Hahn from Turn Bicycles. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Fantastic. So, Obviously, lots of people in the bike industry will be incredibly familiar with turn bicycles, and they may well be familiar with yourself as well. But for anyone that doesn't know, could you tell us a bit about yourself, your history in the bike industry, and what your current role is with Turn, please? Well, Turn is uh, Turn is a bicycle company that we started uh, a bit over ten years ago, and we are focused on the urban mobility space. Our our mission is to to get people uh, onto more sustainable forms of transportation. Um, and uh, that is the bicycle. Um, and my, uh, my role is team captain. So I'm, I'm leading, I am cheerleading, um, I'm pointing the way uh, and helping people uh, get their jobs done. That's what I do at TURN. So, Josh, you're based in Taipei, in Taiwan, home of the incredibly famous International Bike Show. It's the epicenter of the bike industry worldwide and has been, I think, realistically for several decades. I would expect many of the listeners to this podcast will be really quite uh, aware of how the bike industry works. I expect many aren't. And I expect even myself, having worked in the industry for a long time, I've probably got a fairly patchy knowledge of really exactly how things have been working. So before we understand the changes that have happened in the last couple of years and try and project into the future, could you give us an idea of how the bike industry has worked globally in the last 20 or so years, please? Uh, well, gee, that's a small, short <laughs> Indeed. topic. Um, yeah, one bit, one minute without hesitation, deviation, or repetition. <laughs> um, well, I mean, for people who don't know, um, you know, the the bike industry is a it's a very global business. Uh, components are made uh, all over the world, um, and you know, uh, a given bike has you know thirty, forty, or fifty components that have to come together uh, all at the same time uh, for assembly. Um, so you have uh, you know, you have a lot of Shimano components from Japan, but also Malaysia, Singapore, China. Um, you have uh, a lot of e-bike components from Europe. Uh, you have, a, you know, Taiwan is, you know, at the, as you said, the epicenter of a lot of, you know, components, you know, whether that's uh, OEM, uh, OEMing uh, manufacture for a lot of name brands. So, you know, like, a Bontrager or a Specialized, those components are largely made by uh, Taiwan factories, um, either based in Taiwan or China or now increasingly Vietnam. Um, European brands like Schwalbe uh, tires uh, are made in Asian factories. Um, so it's it's super global, um, and so you know the supply chain issues that that we're seeing now uh, have huge effects on the factories because um, as I said, you need 30, 40, 50 components to all come together at the same time. And if you're missing one component, um, you have a, an entire bicycle that you can't ship. 
Um, however, you've paid for all of these components. So, you know, imagine a, you know, an e-bike that, you know, leaves the factory for, we call it FOB price, FOB price of 2000 US dollars. Now imagine you're missing a, uh, a cardboard box. So as crazy as it, as it sounds, that's, that's something that we heard happening to one of the large factories. They couldn't ship out thousands of bikes because they were missing cardboard cartons because, you know, there was, there was a problem uh, at, at the factories getting enough paper pulp, right? So when, when shipping goes haywire, uh, everything gets messed up. And, you know, we live in a very interconnected world. Things that we need come from all sorts of places, you know, so, you know, when, when, you know, like the Ukraine war, right? So nickel, nickel is, is a key component for stainless steel, um, you know, and, and when you have, right, the war in Ukraine and a lot of nickel coming out of these, these areas, then it creates huge problems. So it's just, uh, it's, it's been crazy, I think. People know, hey, it's been hard to get bikes, but behind the scenes, uh, at the factory level, it's been it's been chaos and crazy, and everybody in the supply chain is working as hard as they can to get product out. But it's it's been it's been very difficult. Yeah, certainly, and it's interesting, isn't it, when you look at the old videos of uh, bikes being made in factories in whichever country it may be and pretty much everything was made there in that factory so the chain the chain set everything was built you know if you're reading books about the old french touring bikes from the 1950s the frame builders in the back of shops would be making their own stems their own racks their own chain sets and now it's so so different and i've been speaking to wheel companies who say well sean we've just had 2000 rear wheels shipped but no front wheels and of course people tend to want to get a pair of wheels for high-end performance wheel sets i've had several um tool companies tell me that they can't get enough high-grade steel or yeah. maybe they they can get 98 tools from a 100 piece toolkit so they can't sell that 100 piece toolkit yeah. so it's a fairly familiar story and yeah. while in the last 20 years, there have been all sorts of fluctuations with trade and currency and prices have gone up and down and such. We really have been in a kind of global golden age, haven't we? You know, you could just buy a group set, uh, uh, you know, here in the UK with one of the importers, you could order something at 8.30 p.m. and it's there the next day and you can throw it on a bike and it's good to go. Whereas now we're looking at lead times of 2023, even 2024, actually, for some SRAM components here in the UK. So you've talked about it being chaos in the factory, the supply lines, the materials. What have been the major disruptions in these, these last 18 months? Well, it's, you know, the better question is what, what hasn't been. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's everything. So raw materials, right? We start with raw materials. You know, you said, hey, they couldn't they couldn't get enough steel. Well, mm. aluminum is at an all-time uh, high in price. So I think the the website that I checked goes back 40 years. And if you look at the chart, you know, it it is at a current, you know, all-time high for as as far as that chart goes back. 
So 40 years, aluminum has never been more expensive. And, and basically, you know, it's, it's starting from January. Um, you know, it was high towards the, you know, Q3, Q4 of last year. At the very end of the year, aluminum prices dropped quite a bit back to, you know, closer to a normal level. And then starting in January, just basically straight up. Um, but, you know, I mentioned wood pulp, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, can, can you imagine that there's a shortage of cardboard boxes? Well, yeah. that's a reality. Um, you know, it's uh, semiconductors, right? We've all, we've all heard about that affecting the car industry, but guess what? We use lots of those chips inside e-bikes, right? The yep. kind of the one kind of the one area of the bike industry, which is really, really doing well, but we're, we're getting hit by shortages there. So that, of course, that affects everybody. Um, you know, we also have freight, you know, and we, when we talk about freight, it's not just that, hey, freight costs have gone up by 10x, which they have. Mm. So it used to cost, you know, about $2,000 to ship a, a container across the ocean. And and now it's it's uh, occasionally over 20000 Wow. You know, and so, yeah, we're, we sell pretty high-end e-bikes right so hey if the 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 cost of an e-bike you know goes up by fifty dollars and let's hypothetically the fob is two thousand dollars okay that's something that is absorbable to an extent but imagine you're selling a a children's bike which is you know fob fifty dollars and now your freight cost is up by let's say 30 um that's something that would be very difficult to absorb um so, and it's not just cost, right? It's it's actually uh, physical metal boxes that you have to put the product into. So there was a shortage of actual containers um, to the point where, you know, I have a friend with a with a farm here in Taiwan, and and I think he has a one or two old containers sitting on it, just used, you know, for use as storage. And people were coming around and asking you know, if they could buy the old containers off his farm just because there was such a a massive shortage. Um, And then it's, you know, we had, you know, for example, we had had some bikes that were uh, ordered by New Zealand Post, um, you know, for, you know, for use delivering mail. Mm -hmm. And they were sitting at our factory for, I think, four months because none of the shipping companies wanted to take e-bikes to New Zealand. So hmm. they just sat in the factory for, you know, and so it's, I mean, it's, you know, those are the kinds of shipping issues um, yep. that we have. And then we had, you know, this small little thing called COVID, uh, <laughs> which, uh, you know, it, it shut down our factory in Vietnam for a number of months. So uh, at the end of last year, we were not shipping any products. And so we were all sitting here getting pretty nervous, right? And yeah, when, you, when, yeah. you're not, when you're not shipping out product and you, know, you still have uh, uh, all the payments that you need to make and, and all of your partners who have taken deposits on bikes and you know, made promises to their dealers. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, raw materials, COVID, shipping um 
I'm sure I'm missing a number of other things, but those are the three big ones that happened in yep. the last yep. two years. And it's funny, isn't it? Because it feels like the whole thing was built on sands almost. It feels like it's not been a huge amount to make it all crumble. One thing maybe a lot of listeners aren't aware of, I know I'm not, is how much government support has there been in the key manufacturing areas? So in Taiwan, in China, in Vietnam, in Malaysia, how, how many companies have been able to survive because of government support or how many have suffered because of lack of it? Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know how much government support there's been. Um, I mean, we've gotten... We've gotten more government support in the U.S. than we than we've gotten in Taiwan. Right. Um, so I in Taiwan we, you know, we we haven't had any, um, but oh, Taiwan wow. has done unusually well. Uh, right. We haven't had huge numbers of cases. I don't know that there is a that there is any substantial government support. Um, you know, for example, in in Vietnam when the factory closed, as as far as I know. You know the factories were required to keep everybody on the payroll, <laughs> and, that, and that can happen in a communist country, right? Just you know, they they tell you, and you do it. So if anything, that's you know that's the opposite of government support. I mean, you are you're making yeah. the payments, you know, uh, for the government. Um, so yeah, as far as I know, in Asia, there hasn't been a whole lot of uh, government support. I, you know, I. You know, you'd have to talk to some of the people with the the factories in these mm. these areas, but um, none that I'm aware of. And looking at the the turn roster, you've got some pretty high tech bikes here. So the children carrying bikes, which are e bikes and such, and as bikes are much more complex now, do you think these sorts of issues affect the more complex bikes more because there's more? components there's more pieces of the puzzle to fit together or as you say is it the higher end that's doing better because it can absorb the changes in in margins and price it's it's a very interesting question um it's something i've been thinking about and my observation is that the bike supply chain is almost it's it's bifurcated so it's kind of split off into kind of a low end and a and a mid high end mm-hmm. and the low end is primarily coming out of China. Yeah. Um and right in the and the high end is right, you know, Taiwan, Malaysia, Vietnam, Europe, of course. Um, and my observation is that the supply chain has been somewhat less affected uh, in China. Okay. Um, and I think that's because, you know, China did a relatively good job with keeping COVID out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there hasn't been as much disruption uh, to the to the Chinese uh, factories. Um, and so, I, you know, I know our we, we work with two partners in China. I know one of them, you know, that does the the lower end bikes. They can supply bikes in three to four months. Right now, they can supply mm-hmm. bikes in three to four months. Um, our other factory. Uh, in China, which you know does our mid to high end stuff, they are, you know, they're when they're buying from Shimano, Tetro, 
you know these these factories the you know the delivery times are standard for now which is 18 to 24 months yeah yeah and so you know i think you know the most of the bikes that you see in europe will come from this kind of mid-high supply chain and so delivery times are long uh, but if anybody's able to get bikes out of china um then delivery times are shorter so i think that's kind of an interesting thing that i've i've noticed with the supply chain and there's you know if you're buying mostly chinese made or let's say uh parts from chinese manufacturers um then the the, the delivery delivery times are quite a bit shorter um, and there are just massive bottlenecks if you're buying from you know the 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 large Taiwan suppliers, you know, whether that's Tektro or Formula or Velo, you know, these these big factories. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was really encouraged to hear that Turn Bicycles is all about urban mobility and, you know, making a, a better world in terms of more environmentally transport. But of course, you know, I talked about the supply chain being built on sand in many ways and lots of global systems seemingly uh, being unsustainable, but most importantly, being environmentally unsustainable as well. I think it's been something that's been no big secret. It's been talked about a lot in the bike industry. And what I wanted to look at is the possibility of things getting back to normal in big bunny ears around that. But also, do we want to get back to normal? Does this crisis afford us an opportunity to rebuild our industry in a more sustainable fashion, both in terms of the economics and business side, but also for general health of the planet side as well? Well, when you say unsustainable, um, are you talking to manufacturing processes or are you talking to about shipping, you know, and freight? Like what, I guess I, I'd be interested to know what you're referring to. Well, I suppose, yeah, so purely on the economic side, as we've talked about, it's taken a few crises, different crises in the world to completely mm. disrupt the supply mm. chain. So that seems to be not very robust. Um, and uh, yeah, unsustainable just in terms of, well, we're facing a great extinction ah, <laughs> you okay. know, as well. So what yeah. we have is uh, an entire global system, which essentially needs a, a complete rebuild from the ground up and us being part of that, all of us. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's been the lack of robustness in the supply chain and that desire for all of us in the bike industry to ultimately build a better world. Because we all know bikes are part of that, don't we? Yes. And it's is this an opportunity now to rebuild in a robust and really ecologically sound way? Well, I think, you know, in a way it's been, you know, the supply chain has been hit by a perfect storm. Um, mm. Right. But I think the reality is that we have to recognize that we're, we live on a, we live on one small planet and we're connected and uh, you need peace to have prosperity. Uh, and even with peace, you know, you have things like COVID, which, <laughs> right. And so um, we need to, you know, can we go back to, you know, siloed countries all being self-sufficient? I think it would be very hard uh, mm -hmm. to go back in that direction. And I think it's not very healthy. I mean, 
we're going to we're going to see it happen right with russia yeah right i mean we're going to see russia make a go of being completely selfish sufficient in terms of you know food and natural resources and technology and how is that going to work for them uh and and financial markets you know i i think it's going to be hard but you know what's what's hard for them will also be hard for the outside world because you know the outside world depends on you know russian oil russian gas and russian raw materials and mm. and russian grains yeah yeah right so you know i think as as we rebuild i think you know i think politicians and you know people we all have to recognize that you know we live on this interconnected planet and we have to figure out ways to you know coexist peacefully yeah. and even then we will have challenges yeah um, certainly and i think uh you know just raw capitalism um you know that is also problematic it's mm. you know it's it, it leads to you know innovation and growth um but it also has its has its issues um, and and yeah. i think you can see that right if you just go look it's just cheaper for me to outsource everything to another country uh well then you've hollowed out you know uh, industry or manufacturing or or farming in your own country right and so i think that's where governments need to step in and go okay hey look we need to guide uh guide people in the right direction by setting laws and incentives and penalties uh so you know in the best interest of our country um and i think that that's also important yeah so it's it's you know we're in for a tough time uh you mm. know in the in the coming decades you know with climate change um so uh yeah Ho hopefully right russia ukraine that can be settled before too long um but yeah we've got enough challenges you know without that going on as well yeah certainly and obviously you know i want to be as sensitive as possible with this question but obviously china's looking at russia right now in terms of ukraine and in terms of taiwan and i don't think anyone in the world can help to notice that there's a real danger of a flashpoint you know with, with china and taiwan um so in terms of if there was an invasion or if there was, you know, massive tension there, you talk about you work with Chinese companies currently. Mm -hmm. So there seems to be, you know, quite a degree of pragmatic partnership. Do you think there's any real danger uh, of us actually, you know, getting to that stage or um, is it is it very unlikely? Um. You know, I think that's the that's the million dollar question for everybody as well. Mm. I I would say that, you know, the you know, the world uniting uh financially um against Russia, right? Even famously neutral countries like Switzerland, um and and uniting so quickly um has I, I think gives notice to anybody that wow if you really act out of line um there are ramifications beyond just kind of you know military ramifications you know just because i think being part of the global financial system is so so important to 
you know, the success and welfare of every country. If you are shut off and ostracized, um, it will be very difficult, you know, for you as a country. So I think every every country is looking at that and going, wow, we need to recalculate a little bit. Um, so, you know, I think the bottom line is, you know, we need peace to have a chance at prosperity. Um, and that's, you know, that's, you know, for every country, that's what it is. Um, and, you know, I think, I think everybody, uh, right. Look, even, even, you know, even, you know, a lot of the Russians, if I would say most, I don't know if that's accurate, but a lot, um, would agree that, Hey, you know, this is, what are we doing here in this war? Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a hard one, right? Yeah. Probabilities are not zero. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Yeah. No, I'm sure you're right, Josh. I mean, if you'd asked uh, a Bavarian farmer and a Lancashire factory worker in 1914, do you want to go to war with each other? <laughs> the question would have been no. I think we all know that in general, most people do want that peace and prosperity that, that we're talking about. So moving away then from some of these big global issues which are <laughs> flying around us at the moment and we get more yes. into the the bike trade stuff something that has been driven actually by by covid or exp- you know uh, accelerated by covid has been consumer direct trading so obviously it's been something that has mm. been a big success for brands like canyon and rose etc and now the big guys are getting into it so famously specialized they said they never go consumer direct they're going consumer <laughs> direct um and it, it really looks like it's just a natural change you know um certainly the high street in many many countries is rapidly changing you know dying and, and being reborn and a lot of people in the bike industry are looking at saying how much should be based in retail, how much should be based in workshop. So first of all, what, what's the term policy? Do you really want to work through dealers who know your product and trained in your product? Are you interested in consumer direct as well? Um, I think, you know, I think, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a longtime Amazon customer. Uh, I think there are a lot of products that work well, consumer direct, right? Mm-hmm. Buying a shirt, uh, buying kitchen appliances. I think those all work well. Um, I think a bicycle, uh, especially a, a more complicated bicycle, and especially a very complicated e-bike, uh, our belief is that that has to have local service. Yeah. Um, and if you don't have local service, you're just going to be spending a lot of energy, you know, over the email, over email or, you know, FaceTime, trying to, to keep people happy. But, you know, an e-bike, especially if it's used for transportation, you know, it's, it's ridden daily, it will need service. There's, mm-hmm. there's, there's no way around that. Um, and you just can't do, you know, remote service you have to have somebody there on the ground who's properly trained who has the correct tools the correct diagnostic hardware software um to do it you know maybe a maybe a very simple children's bike you know it might work reasonably well um you know direct to consumer 
but a complicated e-bike, especially, uh, you know, one that is, um, you know, if you don't do it properly, it could be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, we feel like it, it absolutely has to have local service and that is the dealer. So, um, that's, that's how we look at it. Yeah, um, certainly. And it is because obviously I'm, um, director at cycle systems academy and we're doing professional training for mechanics mm. here in europe mm. and e-bikes are quite a challenge in terms of training so the non-intelligent systems of course we can teach generically you know the basic safety diagnostic and repair jobs we can do but all of the intelligent systems are very much brand specific and often have the brand specific training so we can't teach people um the bosch dealer training course because that's delivered uh, by Mark Kayla and co at Bosch and as it should be really. And yes. then some of, some of the other larger, um, you know, intelligent motor manufacturers don't have that much dealer training. And it's a complaint I get quite a lot from dealers is, Hey, sure. we want to learn about X, Y, Z motors and the company aren't stepping up and we can't really fulfill that role. So certainly, as you say, if you've got a company that's dedicated to service, dedicated to the dealers and dedicated to the consumer. It's got to be a win. Absolutely. So another really interesting part of the e-bike market, and we talked about this on last month's podcast, is there's lots of people coming into the e-bike market who may be be making electric cars or, um, you know, smaller Mm. electric vehicles and very much people from outside of the bike industry and all over all over Europe, what I see is e-bike stores and they're completely separate from the old school bike shop. They don't do anything that isn't e-bikes. Do you think a bike shop owner um, or someone in the bike industry listening to this podcast should be concerned that someone like BMW or Harley Davidson or whatever could literally move in next door and gobble up the market? Well, I think, you, you know, you always have to be on the alert for competition, right? I think yep. there's, you know, it doesn't matter what business you're in, you, you have to keep your eyes and ears open because the reality is, right, markets are changing so quickly. Um, and if you don't stay agile and stay alert, you could get gobbled up. Um, that said, uh, you know, car companies have been trying to do bicycles for decades um and and they've never they've never done them very well and i think the reality is that you know car companies have always looked at bikes as you know marketing it's marketing or it's advertising it's not it's not a real business that they you know are are jumping into with two feet to be to actually do a good job um you know and and are car companies agile no, not really, right? In fact, they're the they're the opposite of agile. So, you know, as as you know, as bike dealers or bike manufacturers, you know, we, we have that advantage that we we tend to be more agile. We're we're smaller. We can change directions more quickly. But that means that we have to be willing to do that also. Um, yeah. You know, and so absolutely, we have to. You know, right? You said Harley Davidson, BMW these car brands, you know, we, we do have to keep, you know, you know, be alert. Um, and mm. look, even, you know, even there are a number of direct to consumer brands, you know, that, that just sell their own brands and their own shops. Um, 
that's also a potential threat uh, to a bicycle dealer, right? If they if they open yeah. up next door, um, and so it's you know it's it's really thinking about you know how to adapt your business. I know, I know one of the things is that a, a lot of shops, uh, you, you know, service uh, service is not a uh, profit center. Yeah. Um, but I think it needs to become a profit center uh, for every shop out there. Yeah. Um, I was talking to uh, to a partner of ours who actually runs car dealerships, and I said, "Hey, you know what? What percent of your your profits are from new car sales uh, versus service?" And his answer was, "Seventy uh, percent of our profit comes from service. Thirty yeah. percent comes from from you know new car sales." Um, and you know, I think. We have to, especially as we transition into higher ticket e-bikes is, you know, I, I think the bike industry needs to look a little bit more like a motorcycle or a scooter shop or even a car dealership um, where service is a very big part of uh, the profit um, yeah. you know, rather than, hey, it's, a, it's kind of a free add-on that I, that I use to entice you to buy from me. Um, yeah, certainly. So, uh, yeah, so times are, times are changing. Mm. And one thing that I find interesting is that I spoke to Carlton Reed in the Cycling um, Systems Academy podcast, and we were talking about urban mobility and safety. And Carlton said that every single major bike brand, so the Giants are specialized, the Treks, et cetera, he said every single one of them is in bed with the car industry in terms of all this safety beacons and safety tech. And, you know, Carlton um, had just come back from COP26. It was literally recorded the morning after he got back. And Carlton was incredibly passionate that this was a massive mistake from the bike industry and that they were ultimately facilitating the motor lobby and the car lobby to dominate our cities and to then throw in a, a tech solution where of course the real solutions as we've seen are incredibly cycle friendly infrastructure whether that's south korea which people have told me is one of the best places to cycle in the world or the netherlands which is very famous so do you think that the bike industry needs to be a bit more combative to you know joe biden's um beacons you know safety beacons for bikes which were a sneaky part of his infrastructure plan that no one talked about much um do you think that we just need to stand up to that a bit more and not cooperate with it um yeah it, actually th that's news to me i i hadn't heard that um so i haven't really spent any time thinking about it yeah i mean i would i would i would never advocate you know to be combative for the sake of being combative um sure. i think I think there's enough to advocate for in terms of just, hey, let's let's make our cities better places to live, uh, mm -hmm. safer places to live, yeah. less polluted places to live. Let's let's not drive a car for a two mile trip. Um, let's let's make a city safe to to ride a bike for that two mile trip. Um, so uh, yeah, the safety beacons. Honestly, I don't have you know, any, any thoughts on it now? I think we have yeah. plenty to advocate for in a positive way. Yeah. It, it almost seems like small beans <laughs> compared to what's going on. Well, yes. 
so we've talked about all sorts of threats and difficulties and dangers and we've talked about potential opportunities within there so rebuilding greener rebuilding with an eye on peace and a, a real genuine interconnected planet so as you say it's a pretty small place yes. it's a pretty it's a pretty small place in the solar neighborhood and yes. this level of, of cooperation is critical so what do you see are the opportunities then both for manufacturers like yourself who are dealing globally and for the you know essentially your customers the the importers and dealers what are going to be the opportunities you know in the next decade decade or two which by their very nature are going to contain a tremendous amount of change and disruption well i think you know one of the you know you've mentioned it already is safe cycling infrastructure right yep. and i think advocating for safe infrastructure is the most effective way for us to you know affect change right now um so for example we're you know we're we are uh supporters of the ba uh in the uk yep. bicycling association because they're they're doing great work and and i think when the industry can get unified behind uh you know these types of organizations so it's the ba in the uk it's people for bikes in the us um because i think when we have a united voice we have at least a chance to be heard over the auto lobby right which is uh much bigger much better funded um but at least throwing our support monetarily behind these types of organizations um because we 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 as cyclists know that all you need is a little bit of money spent on safe bike paths and more cyclists will arrive. Like we, we know that. Mm, and, yeah. and it's not a whole lot of money that needs to be spent. So, you know, when, when Carlton is out there advocating and uh, you know, when our kind of our government, you know, our, our national cycling associations are out there advocating, that's, those are the organizations that, that we are supporting with our money. Um, and I think it's money well spent. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, I mean, when I started doing my um, corporate bike mechanic servicing business in London in 2007, the first thing I'd say to all of the companies to try and sell them a, you know, a embedded bike mechanic <laughs> weekly <laughs> or monthly was that every pound or every dollar spent on bicycles, you get a, a return of seven. Uh, you know that that is that is true for private companies that's true for public infrastructure it's probably even more so now with the, with the cost of motoring <laughs> yeah. going so far up so certainly josh it sounds like the the advocacy side of things the urban planning side of things is going to be critical to all of us within the bike industry both to try and influence as much as we can um, although sometimes it does feel like we're the minnows in the pond, but also to adapt to what is present and what is happening. And I found it fascinating, certainly watching London under the mayorship of Ken Livingston get transformed into a cycling-friendly space. And that was mostly because his inner circle were all Green Party and Jenny Jones doesn't get enough credit actually like the, the london hire bikes are called boris bikes they should be called jenny bikes it was jenny jones <laughs> that made this happen and the green party that made it happen 
And then London's pro cycling infrastructure really influenced a, a lot of you know US growth as well. So sometimes one person or a small group of people can in fact affect a huge amount of change. So I'd like Absolutely. to try and finish up on a, <laughs> a positive note there. So after we finish today, Josh, do you, are you literally going back to firefighting or are things starting to get back to normal for you? Um, I think, well, I think there are a lot of, we have a lot of uh, uncertainty um, in the supply chain still. Yep. Um, you know, Ukraine and Russia account for, I think it's something like 25% of a, of a certain chemical I don't remember the. I think it's. It might be neon that is needed for the manufacturing of semiconductors. So mm -hmm. now you think about okay, now that twenty five percent is taken out, and we were already having issues with semiconductors. You know what does that mean? Uh, obviously, there's you know there's there's some of that you know in storage and in, in you know in the supply chain, but after six months, right? What would happen? if semiconductor supply is then cut further. So so we have a lot of uncertainty. I mean, I think on a, on a positive note, uh, I think people everywhere are looking at bicycles and e-bikes as transportation. Um, mm -hmm. We're seeing governments in, especially Europe, right? Especially Europe, but you know, you, 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 know, you also say, like you mentioned, South Korea, Colombia, uh, you know, Osaka. So it's happening globally, but especially we see it in Europe. Um, you know, governments are really looking at bicycles uh, as a way to make the, you know, the transportation network resilient. Um, we couldn't agree more. Um, and so we really see, you know, strong demand um, in, in most markets, you know, for the products that we make. Which is which is very encouraging, and uh, it's really just a question of you know can we can we get the bikes out uh, right right now? Fingers crossed, knock on wood. Um, we're doing okay, but we're you know we're just waiting for the next you know for the next big bit mm -hmm. of bad news to hit from someplace. Um, yeah, hopefully we don't get any, but uh, but you never know these days. That's right. Well, for anyone that's listening, because lots of people listening obviously are in the cycle industry and we're a, a worldwide magazine. Um, so for people listening who are really interested in turn bicycles and are interested in maybe stocking them and becoming those skilled dealers, where's the best place for them to go? Well, in the UK, uh, you'd want to talk to More Large. They yep. are our longtime, very good partners, um, extremely professional. Um, if you want to just check out our bikes, of course, you can check us out online at turnbicycles.com. Um, and, uh, and if you're interested in what we do, you know, drop us a line on, you know, uh, contact at turnbicycles.com. Great. And um, are you present in social media with your uh, turn hat on? Um. Yeah, I well, we're on you know we're on all the social media channels. Um, I I I spot check. Uh, I spot check them, you know, and I'm you know so when people complain, I do see those, and we're you know we're at you know hard at work 
fixing, uh, improving on things. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, you know, that direct feedback right from the market is, that's actually, you know, how we get inspiration for so many of our ideas. Somebody says, mm -hmm. Hey, this, this thing isn't good enough. And then we, we think, yeah, we agree. Okay. Let's work on it. Mm -hmm. And maybe yeah. 18 months later, you know, we have an improvement. Um, but yeah, so that's, we, we love having that direct, direct feedback. Yeah, of course. And it's, it's the same with us as well. So obviously, guys, um, you can get all the latest news about the bike industry worldwide on cyclingindustry.news. You can connect with us on Cycling Industry Chat on Facebook and, of course, Cycling Industry News, both on Twitter and Instagram. So if this discussion has, you know, got you going with questions or opinions or feedback, come on to any of those channels. Feel free to at Turn Bicycles and Cycling Industry News if you want to get us all involved. And Joshua, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure and incredibly illuminating to speak to you. Thank you, Sean. Lots of fun for me too.